This week in Retronauts, we'll drink your blood like cherry pop. Ah, ah, ah. was that i said there it is there what is you doing Me? that oh. Yeah. oh the count okay very good worlds of power mm. hi everyone and welcome to retronauts episode 25 pocket pocket 25 retronauts pocket episode 25 i've forgotten what the official nomenclature of these damn things is you'd think after doing 25 of these i'd know but i don't Hi, I'm Jeremy Parrish, and I have no idea what I'm doing. And with me this week to set me right on my course. Oh, don't trust me too much, but <laughs> I am Ray Barnold. And I'm Bob Mackey. And spoilers, Alucard spelled backwards is Dracula. God. No way. Do you know what <laughs> Pooksie Wexel is? Backward? Yeah, that's I'd right. I have to it's, write it first. It's licks you up. Oh, I see. Oh. Yeah. N- kick it. Konami did that a lot with their their video games. Licks you up was that, or Puxy Wixel or whatever its name was, was that uh, Tony Phil? This no, it was the big skull in Super Castlevania Four with the the giant tongue. Oh, mm. that's right. That was that was their idea of clever. Was like let's come up with a dumb thing that it does and and write it backwards. <laughs> yeah, Konami localization. Everyone, give him a hand. Yes. Yeah, golf clap. <sighs> anyway, yeah, we're gonna talk about Castlevania this episode because well. We've been doing Retronauts again for a year now, and in all that time, I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to abuse the topic of Castlevania, because I talked about it way too much back in the old days of Retronauts. But you see, that's because back then, Castlevania had a present and a future, and we cared about it, and now it doesn't. So now the entire concept of Castlevania is retro. And anyway, I just felt like talking about something comfortable and familiar and fun. And since none of the old episodes of Retronauts exist online anymore, aside from like bootleg versions, why the hell not? Am I right, guys? Well, you are the Castlevania professor. I'm going to say keep circulating the tapes, kids. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll have to share the tapes on uh, on, a, on the blog. or a link to the tapes yeah. on the blog at some point. All right. I'm not going anyway. back to jail. <laughs> So Castlevania, we're just going to talk about the Castlevania NES trilogy specifically because there have been a lot of Castlevania games and there were a lot of Castlevania games released around the times of the NES trilogy, but these were kind of like the the straight arrow through the continuity of the series, not just in terms of plot, but also in terms of how they played. Right. Castlevania debuted in October 1986 in Japan on the Famicom Disk System. Um, it was released on cartridge in Japan like six years later and that version goes for like a hundred dollars as a bear card it's kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. <laughs> um about a month later the uh MEX, msx version of the game came out called akumajo dracula which was the same name as the game in uh you know, the japanese game for famicom but it was a completely different game uh we're going to talk about the nes game because the msx game is weird and it is weird. Not really relevant. And we were just busting Konami's balls for localization. And for as stupid and like just like obvious a pun as Castlevania is, it is so like evocative of uh, the game itself. You know, it's I think it's actually much better than the Japanese name, which is just like oh sure the the devil castle yeah Dracula. yeah the castle yeah. of Dracula yeah <laughs> I just love it. I mean, yeah. for all the goofy things they did, that's the one thing that actually hit that was goofy. I guess so. Well, you know, I think. Oh, go ahead. Ray. No, I, I just said I guess so. I think Castlevania works because they kind of played it straight. It's a dumb name, but they just went with it. They came up with a really cool logo for it that, uh, like the the green text on the the purple field. Yeah, like, yeah. It's very stylish and unique, and uh, really kind of set the tone. There was this consistency in the uh, the U.S. versions of the games that actually wasn't there in the Japanese versions. Uh, the Castlevania titles in Japan were Akumajo Dracula, Evil Castle Dracula, but Castlevania 2 was called Dracula 2, <laughs> and then the third <laughs> game was called Akumajo Densets, The uh, Legend of the Evil Castle. So they, like, kind of couldn't decide on whether it was about the castle, no. or it was about Dracula. Yeah, I think that the arcade years. one was just called Haunted Castle, right? 
I think that was called Akamajo Dracula in Japan also. Okay, yeah. Well, uh, that uh, that legacy of not deciding on the name continued <laughs> for yeah. at least the next 20 years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like 10 years ago, they decided, eh, let's just call it Castlevania here in Japan. Right. So there were two <laughs> games, I think, released under the Castlevania moniker, and that did nothing for the series. So, yeah, Konami has kind of a tradition of not really being sure what to do with the series. The NES, yeah. the NES trilogy like really feels pretty consistent and pretty self-contained, but you go beyond that and the, the series is all over the place. Like, Yeah, I wasn't sure if Konami kept or brought the Castlevania name to Japan in sort of a, a reverse Eggman scenario where it's like, we're going to take the localized name back, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was yeah. because the series is much more popular in the US than in Japan. They were like, well, maybe the Magic Mojo is the name. But it turns out <laughs> that wasn't the case. No. Anyway, the series is dead now, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, so Castlevania launched in Japan in October 1986. The U.S. version came out about half a year later, May 1987. Um, it was part of the Konami NES series, the early days with the really cool silver boxes. Mm-hmm. Had really great artwork that was totally a ripoff of... Um, oh, crap. Who is the artist on that? Boris. Damn it. Boris Vallejo, yeah. yes. Like, it's it's totally just a straight-up ripoff of a Vor- Boris Vallejo painting. Um, but it's very cool, very colorful. Like, it really popped on the shelves. Shelves. And, so much uh, better than a, a pre-rendered image. Also, oh has God. a lot to do with Conan the Barbarian. The uh, the game it does? The game does? Uh, the, the character, the main character. I mean, in, in his initial form and in the arcade version, he looks a lot like Conan. Um, that didn't translate very well to the sprite, but the original artwork, I think he looks a lot like Conan. Yeah. Um, Just the barbarian type, ar- archetype. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like, he's got, like, the furry loincloth and a whip and long hair. Um, definitely not kind of your, your traditional action hero. But but the, the whip was actually kind of what made the game interesting because it was such an unconventional approach to uh, to the game. And it really kind of de- – it, it really shaped the way the game played, I think. You know, a lot of, a lot of characters at the time had, you know, just short melee attacks or they shot uh, projectiles. Um, or they didn't have any weapon at all. But but Simon Belmont, the hero of Castlevania, had a short-range weapon that kind of, like, you know, when he whipped, it, it was sort of a, a physical commitment. You know, he extends his arm forward right. and, and has to change his stance for it. And that reflects not only in the spriting, but also in the play mechanics. Like, there is a very sort of methodical feel to Castlevania. There, there is like a, a delay too, like a one frame delay because there's the, the animation of the whip going backwards first and it's not that much of a delay, but like you said, you have to like commit to your action that you're doing. Like you have to time it out so that that whip connects. It's not like a, you're shooting a fireball instantly or something like that. Right. And one of the, mm-hmm. the neat things about the, uh, the whip animation is that when your whip is poised backward and it's behind your back, like the whip actually can damage things behind yeah. you in oh. that one frame. Like there's there's lots of neat little details. It was a game that they really spent some time thinking about, and um, Konami, you know, up until that point had been kind of an arcade facing company. Like that was really sort of uh, where they had made their name. But they had definitely embraced the Famicom era and the MSX. I think with equal fervor, they, they made a lot of MSX games, and you can kind of see that in the the sort of dual release of the first two Castlevania games uh, for NES and Fam and, and MSX. Yeah. Um, but this was uh, – I, I feel like this was kind of a step above what they had done before, kind of like Mega Man was a step above what Capcom had done on home consoles before. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, even Mega Man in the same way, like its control and stuff, it, it has a good feel to it, much like the same way that Castlevania does because of that whip animation itself even. I mean <laughs> it just kind of feels good even though it's delayed a bit and, you know, you kind of have to think about it. So, Yeah. I think there's just sort of that uh, sort of that same line running through like the development process there. It's like, you know, thinking about things a bit better and like using the technology to just like make something that feels better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, I mentioned Capcom because I feel like there had to have been some inspiration in Castlevania from Ghost and Goblins, which launched about a year before Castlevania. So clearly there was enough time in there for them to have played the arcade game and said, oh, hey, this is really cool. What if we did it a little differently? What if we did it a little better? And you get the same kind of general feel in Castlevania as in Ghost and Goblins. Like when, you know, when Arthur jumped, he committed to a jump. You couldn't change his direction in midair like you could with Mario. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's the same thing for Cat for Simon Belmont. But 
the level design and the enemy placement in Castlevania is so much more fair than in Ghost and Goblins. Oh, for sure. There's not this kind of like <laughs> screw you randomness to it. You know, it's not it's not as much trial and error. Like Castlevania is definitely a tough game, but it always feels pretty fair. Like I can't think of any sequences aside from maybe some of the bosses where you're just like, ah, this just you know, like I feel overwhelmed. I feel like that wasn't telegraphed well. Um, it has it's a very rhythmic game, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, Capcom would take it back and put uh, Count Dracula Duck as the final boss of DuckTales. <laughs> for, no, for no reason. There's no reason why Dracula should be in DuckTales, but he is, and he's yeah. the last is it, boss. Is it Count Dracula or is it Duckula? Uh, it's actually the, – they don't even have a pun. It's Count Dracula Duck. Yeah. And they keep it like that in the remake too. Wait, actually, Duckula wasn't a Disney property. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah. That was like a British cartoon. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Well, there you go. I guess they couldn't go with Duckula. Yeah. The pun had already been taken. They couldn't go with Chocula either. Hmm. <laughs> or <Damn> Blackula. <laughs> All the puns are copyrighted. Yeah, jeez. What is, what is Blackula backwards? I, I've always wondered what his son's name is. Uh, Alucab? I don't know. Uh, Alucalb. Alucalb. All right. Anyway, um, another thing that I really like about Castlevania and that really caught my attention even at the time when I first played it is that there is a real sense of place about it. Um, the game, you know, this wasn't totally unseen at the time. Um, the game kind of plays out, like, between each level, you see a map of the castle that you're marching through, and it shows Simon's sprite sort of advancing through it and where you're going and where the boss is located and all of that. That was also a Ghosts and Goblins yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, it goes a step beyond that, beyond just saying, oh, look, you're in this castle. Like, the level design actually reflects where you are. Like you're in the entry hall and then you go underneath the castle and then you go up into sort of like the main, I don't know, chambers and then you're crossing bridges and then you're in the catacombs underneath and in the courtyard and the torture dungeon uh, leading up into the clock tower. There's a real sense of progression. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's also like, this is something I've always been fond of pointing out. Like the architecture in Castlevania actually makes sense. There are no floating platforms Anytime you're jumping onto uneven ground, there's like background elements that connect that to the rest of the level. And it's such a small detail. But when you really stop and pay attention, you're like, oh, like I understand why this block is here. This actually used to be part of a platform, but because it's an old castle that's crumbled and rotted away. So now there's like this really treacherous, precarious flooring. Yeah. One thing I noticed also about that sense of location, it's not just uh, the context of where you are in the castle. It's also that in, in other games around this time, when you, when you scrolled uh, you know, something off the screen, it was gone forever. Like that, that, that patch of land you just passed and scrolled off the screen, it was gone. But in Castlevania, you'll often go back through older rooms taking a different path. Like you'll go under a room and then come back and going like across the top towards the left or something like that. Like you revisit areas in different ways uh, throughout the levels too. It, not not as often as um, you know you think, but it does happen a few times. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely put um, dual direction scrolling to good use, um, and that's also something Ghost and Goblins had. But um, that was more kind of like a screw you because I think in Ghost and Goblins, if you scroll off the screen, an enemy will respawn, right? Like in Mega Man and Ninja Gaiden. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Yeah, Castlevania didn't have that little feature. It was. Uh, it was much more fair. Like there were some enemies that appeared infinitely like Medusa's and the, the eagles that dropped the fleamen in uh, the courtyard. But for the most part, like if there was an enemy on screen and you destroyed it and then scrolled backward, the enemy wouldn't reappear. It was gone forever. So you could always kind of make a strategic retreat if you needed to. Yeah. And like <laughs> that's the thing about the sense of place because like Ninja Gaiden does not, does not have that. It's supposed to be like this globetrotting thing, but it's like it's nowhere that you would ever imagine, really. Yeah. And yeah, well, I would the even enemies like, in that game don't make any sense. Like, why are there football players here in this military base? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why did the uh, lanterns that I cut for items suddenly turn into birds in the next station? <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Those hummingbirds are just waiting for you to slice them. Apparently. Up. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I would even like sort of compare that to like the uh, Castlevania sort of sibling, like Goonies too. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, d- you know, I mean, the same thing. I mean, you sort of get the idea that you're sort of in the same place, but then you go into, like, the, the first-person exploration stuff, and you just sort of start to lose, really, what you're doing, where you are, mm-hmm. necessarily. So, And I, I know we're not going to talk about it, but the MSX version of this game reminds me a lot of Goonies. Sure. Goonies 2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, we we can talk about it. I feel like it's probably more relevant to Castlevania 2, though, because mm-hmm. there's so many design similarities. 
between those two games, both good and yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's it's interesting to hear Goonies two referred to as Castlevania sibling. I guess that's true. But but Castlevania works really well. It's such a classic because it's a smaller and less ambitious game, which may seem a little contradictory. But yeah. because it doesn't try to do as much, it just you know it pours the development effort into making the six levels of the game really really good. It's one of those like you know it's a good argument for less is more. I think um, it doesn't have the sprawling scope of a Metroid or a Goonies two. It's much more about like here's your classic action platformer, but damn, it's really fun. Right. And all that leads to it making so much sense when Castlevania went to go like Metroid style. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> of course, you're you know you're in the same place there, and that's yeah. So I mean, I I I'm just saying. I don't know why people thought that was so weird in 1997, you know, <laughs> when they saw Symphony of the Night. It's like, well, it makes sense if you looked back at the first one. Yeah, and there's precedent with the, the second yeah, game absolutely. as well with the RPG elements. Right, exactly. Or, yeah, those first three. <laughs> I guess there was maybe a little bit of precedent for the way Simon controlled in um, not just in Ghost and Goblins, but also uh, Rygar came out around the same time and also Rastan Saga. Uh-huh. And both of those games kind of give you like a barbarian hero with a short range attack. Mm, yeah. And um, Rygar, um, you know, you've got that weird disc armor thing where you're like throwing a Frisbee at enemies and it snaps right back. Um, so it doesn't feel quite like Castlevania, but Rygar or Rastan um, the hero wields a sword and he does have that kind of delay. Like when you attack an enemy, you're committing to it because it makes you stop in your tracks right. like Simon Belmont does. So it was kind of something I think uh, developers were beginning, getting to experiment with, but I feel like Castlevania pulls it off best. Uh, I think it helps that you can sort of jump and whip at the same time and it won't slow your pace down. Um, and that actually becomes kind of a key strategy to a lot of the game. It's also interesting because you could collect sub-weapons that would give you ranged attack and special effects. Um, and your currency to use those wasn't determined by... Uh, well, the, 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 the currency you, you had to, uh, to use your sub-weapons was hearts, which at first you might think you were collecting to improve Simon's health. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to get over actually, that. Actually, that turns out not to, not to be the case. Like, having played Zelda before this, I was yeah. like... <laughs> Why isn't my health going? Also, up? Kid Icarus is the heart currency. I'm sure there's a few other games too. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh, that's my right. Lord. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that's about. Um. Yeah. So, so there's a really solid game here, made even better by the fact that it had amazing music. Uh, the soundtrack to the game is is one of the first really great soundtracks on NES or in any video game, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was top quality. Um, kind of this like sort of chamber music, sort of heavy metal, very electronic. Um, one of the composers was um, Kinuyo, I can't remember her name. Yamashita? Um, yes, Kinuyo Yamashita, um, who was a freelance contractor who had just, like, was just fresh out of college at the time. Wow. Like, she's she's really young. I, I met her a few years back, and I was like, she doesn't seem to be any older than me, but I was just a kid when I played that, so... It's either like dark sorcery or else she was just really, really young when she composed the music. And I think it was the wow. could be the former. I'm not ruling out the sorcery. <laughs> so we know who uh, did the music. Uh, my question is, uh, do we know who actually made the game or who who's behind Castlevania? Like the first Castlevania guy? I mean, we all know Koji Igarashi, obviously, who took over uh, with Symphony of the Night. But I mean, do we know who made Castlevania Castlevania? I have not been able to find that information, and I've looked that seems over and over. It's so the bizarre years. for as big as it is. Yeah, I mean the 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 development credits were all given to um, like goofy pun names for famous right. horror movie actors. Boris Call Office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love Cheney Jr. Like th- that was the credits in the game, which you know that that spoke to kind of the inspiration it had in in Universal monster movies. Like it was clearly oh, the sure. game was sort of a love letter to all those. Uh, hokey black and white monster movies of the 60s and 50s but like it's not so great for um you know for right sort of um 
historical preservation purposes. Like I, I honestly don't know who designed and de- uh, directed Castlevania. And like I said, it's something that I've looked through, looked for through the years, including recently. And it's just that information's not out there. And I even, I even asked, I think Koji Igarashi once, uh, like who was the designer of the original Castlevania? And he was like, I don't, I don't know. Jeez. Oh man. Yeah. It just, I don't know. Uh, like it just bugs me because this game is uh, relatively a big, a big name or an important game. And there are enough people alive who had worked on it that you do figure at least to, at some point in the history of mankind, we would know at least in the year of our Lord 2014, we would know like who made Castlevania. Yeah. It's so depressing. Yeah. That pseudonym shit just really ruined a lot of yeah. history. That's <laughs> like, it's just too bad. It is very sad. Yeah. And when I, when I met the, um, the composer and hardware designer for Castlevania three, like I didn't realize that's who I was talking to when I went to interview him. It was just something Sam Kennedy had set up and was like, Oh yeah, this guy worked with Konami. We should go talk to him. So it just kind of came out in the meeting that, Oh yeah, by the way, I did that cool special chip for Castlevania three and Oh yeah, I did the music for it. Isn't that great? Like that wasn't documented. I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's weird that the musicians seem to be coming out of the, uh, of hiding like the musicians for Capcom and Konami and stuff like that. But we still don't know the game developers. I think can survive more easily as freelancers than um, programmers or game designers. Yeah. They get more. It kind of makes sense. Like I can, I can see that. I mean, you know, historically musicians, composers have been the first to go freelance. So, so I I can kind of, I can kind of get that Mm, sense. And you know, like if you made good music 30 years ago, you probably still make good music, but video game design tends to age a lot more quickly um, and become less trendy, less fashionable. So it's probably tougher for, for a lot of those people. And a yeah. lot of the designers went on to become executives. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, the Rocket Knight guy. Help me out here, Ray. <coughs> oh, I don't uh, know. The Rocket Knight guy, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The Rocket Knight guy. Damn, I, I can't remember his I name. Like not, um, I like Rocket Knight, but but he like you know, developed the, the Rocket Knight games and worked some Contra games, and now he's an executive at Konami, and he doesn't really, uh, you know, work directly on video games anymore, and he doesn't really talk to the press. So yeah, um, which is why I I'm even more annoyed that like when you ask Igarashi and he doesn't know who <laughs> made the first game, it's like he didn't meet anybody who might have stuck around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Like this person, the person that we're going off on a major tangent here, but the sure. person who worked on Castlevania was a living human being who encountered other human beings in his life, presumably still alive. I just assume someone has to know him. Yeah. We need to shake him down for. Well, you for know, answers. Konami did have a lot of different divisions at the time, a lot of different offices. Yes, and there seemed to be, you know, that whole right hand, left hand failure to coordinate things, such as when uh, Hideo Kojima found out they were doing a sequel to Metal Gear for the American market for Famicom. And he was <laughs> right. Like, uh, yeah. NES, yeah. And he was like, oh. Yeah, uh, maybe I should make my own sequel, huh? Yeah. yeah, I think he literally just met a guy in the elevator at Konami. He's like, "Oh, what are you working on?" It's like a sequel to Metal Gear. He's like, "Oh, <laughs> I see." <laughs> All right, mean, oh, that that Metal Gear, huh? Yeah, so so I kind of believe it, and also I've under I understand that uh, Konami and a lot of other companies lost a ton of records and documents, mm. and code and things like that in the Kobe earthquake in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So. Um, so yeah, it's just a it's a kerfluffle, I think. Yeah, it's very sad. Well, if you're out there, please send us an email. If you know English, <laughs> there are several uh, qualifications. You have to know English. Yeah, <laughs> listen to our podcast. You have to listen to Retronauts. Yeah. <laughs> you have to care. Um. Yeah. So anyway, we've we've talked <clears throat> quite a bit about Castlevania. It's it's a very difficult game. Has some kind of infamously na- infamously nasty bosses, but I don't think any of those things are too insurmountable if you mm. kind of get the tricks and figure out how to abuse the item drops and things like that uh, you, you can you can get through to the end can we uh, and the game the game is nice enough to um, when you get to the final battle uh, whenever you die and continue at the final battle it starts you out right in front of the final battle mm. so you don't have to fight through that last level over and over again <laughs> can we talk about jumping really quick because it applies to all the games I don't think we mentioned yeah. it uh, maybe briefly but just like you talked about with attacking, you have to commit. It's the same with jumping. Like you are locked into your jump. It just like actually it feels like it's a, like a stab at realism, strangely enough, in an 8-bit game. Just like once you jump in the air, you are locked into that position until you land again. And um, that is kind of hard to get over if you're used to, you know, it's the sort of freedom we have with jumping in, in video games. 
but it is it's very uh, I mean the game is designed around your limitations uh, especially yeah. with jumping and uh, yeah it actually reminds that's, me that's really the important thing to know yeah. um, is that the game is designed around the way Simon jumps like when you look at blocks you know a gap or whatever you know just innately looking at that oh I can make that jump because Simon jumps you know like two blocks high two blocks forward or whatever this is outside of that range I shouldn't try to make that jump I should find another way around mm-hmm. like there's never any ambiguity about what you can and can't do yeah. in this game that's that's one thing that I like is that your feature your your skill set is so clearly defined that even though it's limited the game doesn't exceed the parameters of what you can do so it builds interesting challenges around that it actually reminds me of uh, Super Mario Land that I, I don't like the jumping in that game because it, it reminds me of Castlevania you're sort of locked into a jump and you fall like a brick when you just slip off of something so I just didn't think it worked as well in that game. I know you guys like Mario Land more than me, but it's not as it's not as limited as Castlevania. But I feel like it's not as free as Mario should yeah, be. Yeah, I'm not going to defend it here. <laughs> no, I I don't disagree with you. Yeah, <laughs> I just played through Mario Land again recently. And I'm like, this, these jumps are like Castlevania jumps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, so Castlevania introduced a ton of conventions that remained series standards and kicked off a franchise that survived for 25 years before kind of fizzling out under its own. Um, irrelevance i guess hmm. I, I mean it's not it's not to say that konami won't make more castlevania games but it's just hard to imagine those games ever recapturing what people liked about castlevania in the old days like they've whenever they've tried to kind of go off the classic style it hasn't worked out very well the 3d games haven't been very good no and i know people a lot of people like lords of shadow and that's fine but it doesn't feel very castlevania like to me. Right. No, it's kind of like God of War with the Castlevania skin on it. I'm just being reductive, but I don't like those games <laughs> either. Yeah, Castlevania does not need to get any more Baroque. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I know you guys mentioned the uh, the well, we we all talked about the MSX game a little bit. Um, so let's let's go a little more into detail about that because I think it's kind of important to understand where the sequel Castlevania Two Simon's Quest comes from. Um, Bob, it sounded like you wanted to talk about that. A bit. Uh, yeah, like I I did watch a playthrough and I read your notes, but I I think it's like you go through an infinite uh, number of rooms until you get the right amount of keys you need. Um, in the MSX version, it's, is that true? It's not. It's not. It's not really an infinite number of rooms. Basically, every level is set up with. Okay, so every level is kind of like a free roaming, standalone, self-contained area. It's it's very similar to the Goonies for Famicom. Uh, if you have, have ever played that, like on PlayChoice yeah. Ten. Um, but the difference with with uh with Castlevania on MSX is that the uh. There's like you know the the sort of infinite tunnel effect um, where you have maybe like three levels across and three levels high, so it's like nine screens total. But if you go to the third screen and walk up the right side, you'll flip around. Oh yeah, they wrap the around side like, of the first yeah. screen. So yeah, wrap around. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, so it's not infinite, but it has that kind of infinite feel because of the wraparound. The the rooms do repeat, and there are a finite number of items within those rooms. Um, but you kind of have to figure out your way through the the stages, and it's very very unforgiving. It is, like, yeah. Uh, health is hard to come by, and enemies hit hard, and I don't think there are any continues. So it's it's really not a nice game. It's it's kind of Castlevania done badly. Yeah, the level designs aren't nearly as thoughtful, but I feel the same way about Castlevania right. too. Um, there's right. a lot of ex- expansive spaces, but they're not doing a lot of really interesting things with them. That's right. But Castlevania 2 did take a different style. Instead of being broken into like these self-contained levels where you could roam freely inside of them, it is a large, contiguous world. And one thing that it does, I think, pretty well is create the sensation of the entire land of Transylvania um, with pathways and interconnections. And you kind of need, kind of need to map it out as you're going along. But it actually does feel like, oh, this area matches up to this area. And, you know, especially once you get some of the the items to help you travel more and uh, to make better progression, 
um, you start to see how like these places link together in interesting ways. So that's what it does well. But then it does a lot of things badly, like the mansions. Those are essentially dungeons, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And those those feel a lot like um, the MSX game, honestly. Um, to the point that there's even like a merchant inside each uh, each mansion that's very similar to the merchants who uh, sell stuff to you on the MSX game. Yeah, I was watching the MSX game and I wasn't sure of how it worked, but it seemed like when you meet merchants... Like you, you whip them until they change colors, and then like what they sell you is based on what color they are. But I guess if you whip them too much, they die. So it's like, so it's like I want B, an but, <laughs> Twin B, but screw you. Yeah, uh, it sounds like Twin B actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> Shooting the belt. That's Twin B. That's works what the same I just way. said. Oh, oh sorry. okay. I missed that <laughs> overlap. That's okay. Um, yeah. So so Simon's Quest also introduced a day night cycle. And I, I'm sure there must have been games before Simon's Quest that had a day-night cycle, but this is actually something I researched recently, and I can't find a really good example of something other than just like a cosmetic, you know, like, oh, in, in this level of Super Mario Brothers, it's dark outside because it's the next day. Um, like, night and day actually have an Im- impact on how Castlevania Two plays. During the day, you can talk to villagers, you can go into towns and enter buildings. At night, everything becomes boarded up. Enemies become twice as hard. Towns become overrun by zombies. It just yeah. gets to be a much more difficult game at night. That is interesting because, like, Dragon Quest Three came out later, and that had day and night, but that also did not affect gameplay that much. So, <laughs> Did your counter rate go up at all, or...? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. No, it's the, sa- it's the same enemies at night uh, in Castlevania. Oh, I was talking about Dragon Quest uh, Three. Like, I was wondering how the day-night oh. cycle affected actual okay. gameplay outside of you know things change in towns. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what else is there except like that stupid uh, Jekyll and Mister Hyde game? <laughs> oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Screw that game. Um, yeah. The the other interesting element of the day-night cycle is that there actually was a counter of how many days you had spent traveling through, ah. uh, through the game. And the number of days that you take to reach the end of the game determines the ending you get. And there's like some weird programming, programming glitch or something where if you like get, beat the game within a week, then you get the worst ending, which um, it's, it's actually really hard to beat the game in that <laughs> limited amount of time. So I feel like that can't have been right. Like, oh, yeah, you, you really pushed it and, and totally beat the game and are awesome. So, yeah, you're dead and cursed. And <laughs> Yeah, there's a really good Legends of Localization article about the Castlevania 2 ending where it it's, uh, posits that, like, the, the endings got mixed up in the game's programming, so you're not, giving the, you're not always given the right ending. Like, there's some inconsistencies there. Read the article. It's, it's hard to explain uh, yeah. in podcast form. That's a website. Uh, yep. Yeah, and uh, another interesting thing about Castlevania 2 is that it's deliberately opaque, like it goes out of its way to misdirect you, uh, as if the the game mechanics weren't opaque enough. Like you know, needing to hold a crystal and kneel at a certain place, you can talk to villagers who will actually tell you the wrong thing. They will actually lie to your face. And I think that there is like a little bit of a visual code hmm. for who's going to be honest and who's not. But it's really hard to figure this out. And I actually I remember one time. Um, oh, it was when. Um, when I was interviewing Koji Igarashi before Order of Ecclesia came out, and I was like, oh, this game kind of reminds me on the surface a little bit of Castlevania 2. Have you kind of looked at that game for uh, influence? Would you think about, you know, kind of going back toward that style? And he was like, no way, man, screw that game. Like, everyone <clears throat> lied to you. I thought it was just mistranslations. But no, it turns out that yeah. the game really, like, those the the hints that they give you that are wrong those were deliberately done that way. It was not like the the English localization is just bafflingly <laughs> off. It's that um, they actually just uh, were trying to misdirect you and, and make you sad. Yeah. And also the graveyard duck actually was about a graveyard yeah. duck, like a duck that lives in the <laughs> He's graveyard. the cousin of toilet duck. Did... Did that make you sad when you found that out, Jeremy? It's like, oh, man, I wish there No, <laughs> I, wish I thought it was awesome. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm almost positive there's a fan, tran- fan retranslation that makes the lies more uh, con- convincing yes. <laughs> or the lies are better better spoken. Yes, there is. There's yeah, a ROM okay. hack that does that and also some other little tweaks that make mm. it more uh, reasonable. Like yeah. night, night doesn't last as long or something, something like, like that. that yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the challenge in Castlevania 2 almost entirely comes from figuring out what the hell you're supposed to do. Yeah. Like in terms yeah. of game mechanics, it's not really hard. Uh, like if you die, you can continue and you'll resume right on the spot where you were. 
the only thing you'll lose, I think, is your current experience level. Uh, you won't lose your level, but like all the experience you've earned toward the next level. Oh, you'll it's lose. like Zelda 2. Yeah, but the the experience system works in a really weird way. Like, there's kind of like a max cap on level you can on, on experience you can earn in a given area. So, like, if you're in the the very initial area, um, like once you hit level two, enemies in that area no longer give you experience. You can get hearts from them to buy stuff, but um, you have to go find more difficult enemies to uh, to get experience from. So it's always kind of pushing you forward and mm. nudging you in that direction. But the system kind of falls apart. Because when you go into a mansion, time stops and you can just yeah. farm for experience <laughs> up to the yeah. max cap in that area in each mansion with no time penalty. So the game kind of comes to a, a crawl when you get into a mansion because you just stand around and farm experience until uh, until you've reached your, your cap. So, um, yeah, like they, they tried some really interesting, adventurous stuff with the game, but it just didn't quite work out. Yeah. I was playing it this morning, and I had uh, this is most obvious the overdone comparison to make. But I was like, "This is kind of like Dark Souls, but not as I mean, it, it, but more impenetrable." Um, Ding. Yeah, it's really the Dark Souls of Castlevania. Yeah, it's like uh, people talk, and you have no idea what they're talking about, and um, you know they're deceptive NPCs, and you really don't know which direction you're going, and you can pretty much go wherever you want, but you're not going to make progress unless you you know figure out where the heck you're supposed to go next. Uh-huh. I really wonder where. Castlevania 2 ranks in relation to the, the Zelda games on like Nintendo's most calls to the counselor center. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's not a coincidence that the first couple of issues of Nintendo Power were just jam-packed with Simon's Yeah, yeah. I could be misremember. Like I think oh, go ahead. I think the first Nestor Howard and Nestor comic was, it was Castlevania yes, 2, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> I could be misremembering, but I think Castlevania 2 is one of those games that even years after it would come out, um, like even as late as like 1990 or 91, there would be things in Nintendo Power in the counselor's corner. Like, how do I do this? Like, just like they were putting stuff about Mickey Mouse Capade in like years after it came out. Just <laughs> right, like, we right. need to keep these tips in circulation yeah. because there's no internet. <laughs> yeah. Just craziness. No one's buying Zach Meston's books <laughs> or Jeff Rovin or whoever. Both. Um, both. <laughs> both, yes. <laughs> Um, so the, the, the one final thing I wanted to mention about Simon's quest is that it does a really cool thing with Castlevania itself, which is to use it as sort of the epilogue of the game. Like you spend the entire game going through Transylvania, gathering the, the fragmented body parts of Dracula so that you can put them together, resurrect him, burn him and destroy his curse once and for all. And at the end of the game, you go to Castlevania, which is basically how you left it in the previous game. It's a pile of rubble after the castle collapsed at the end of Castlevania. Hmm. Um, so you get in, into this area, and basically um, the, the landscape becomes more and more bleak as you approach the uh, the final castle. And uh, like the very final stretch is basically like it's completely gray. Like there's no life left at all. Mm-hmm. There's a town right outside of Castlevania where there's basically, I think, just one person, like a crazy person who's hiding there, who asks you to live with that person forever. He's like, come live with me here forever. It's, it's really weird. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to Castlevania itself, and there are no bad guys. There's like It's the final area, but there are no enemies. There are no monsters. Like It's just desolate ruins. That is and cool. you find your way through, and then you resurrect Dracula and kill him, and that's the end of the game. So it's kind of anticlimactic, but it's also really interesting because it's just so different from how video games work. Yeah. Yeah. Usually the last level of an NES game is like this ultimate test of like patience and skill where they're throwing everything at you at once, but that's very atmospheric and very atypical of uh, that era. Yeah. And there aren't any, even any um, difficult puzzles to get to, to, you know, to the final dungeon to the, to Castlevania. You just kind of go to the last area that you haven't been and it's a straightforward process to get there. So it's, Hmm. um, it kind of feels like the hard parts out of the way now you just have to finish up the story. It's almost like a, a coda or an epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. I think the game in general just feels like the culmination of that short short period of like NES games that were just like total opaque <laughs> things. And you just like – after that, it was just like things got a bit more honed and like people realizing what was yeah. fun more often. I mean – the extreme challenges for super gamers were were not was not as common, mm-hmm. like secret space games where it's like shoot yeah. the third tile on in the fifth screen yeah. and you'll open the story. Yeah, uh, or Milan's Secret Castle. Yeah, yeah, things like that. Sure, yes, compared to yeah, <laughs> yeah, the era of Milan. 
or uh, Legacy of the Wizard. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think both of those games actually came out about the same time in the U.S. as as Simon's Quest. So it kind of yeah. makes sense. They're all part of the same horrible little family. <laughs> People who hate you. You know, that just makes Castlevania 3 all the better because it really uh-huh. feels like Konami said, well, guys, that was an interesting experiment, but love, maybe we should take the few little good ideas from Castlevania 2 and, and marry it back to the stuff that people liked about Castlevania 1 and that worked so well. So you end up with a game that is much more of a traditional action platformer. You know, it's like maybe twice, three times as long as Castlevania, but it's still the same concept. Like it's level to level. You're always marching forward. You're always marching to your goal. There are no shops. There's no experience. There's none of that stuff. It's just whipping, destroying, fighting, really challenging action, but you know, again, tightly designed. And um, this time it's much more expansive and there are more ideas. There's more stuff to do. Uh, so it has mm-hmm. a lot more depth, but at the same time, it's still built around that that core element of just like, rock hard challenging uh rhythm based action mm-hmm. it's also gorgeous it's beautiful yeah sounds good too it is indeed and it sounds great yes even if you play the american version yeah even in the american version those great konami drum samples i just love hearing those uh they're just so good yeah so it, it bears mentioning that um in in Japan, the uh, both Simon's Quest and Castlevania Three had better soundtracks than in America. Castlevania Two was on the Famicom Disk System, so it had an extra sound channel. But for Castlevania Three or Akumajo Densetsu, um, Konami actually created one of its special mapper chips that had, I think, three extra sound channels. So that bumped up the number of available sound channels from four to seven, uh, and the soundtrack to Castlevania three in Japan sounds amazing. It's got all this extra, like Mm -hmm. uh, there's sampling channel and an extra, I think square wave channel. It's just, it sounds so good. It's really, really dense sound. It doesn't sound as, uh, as computerized. Nintendo was not a fan of letting people use their uh, custom mappers in America though. So they said, no, you guys have to use, I think the MMC three chip. Maybe it was MMC five. Do you remember about uh, Ray? Uh, I want to say five. Yeah. Yeah. Five sounds great. It doesn't great. really matter. But anyway, it was one of their advanced chips, but it wasn't nearly as advanced as the Konami VRC6. So they had to go in and take out and reprogram elements. There were a few graphical changes, but it was mostly the sound. Was the game... Um... And there are a lot of people who are like, I'm not going to play the American version of this game because it's crappy. No, mm-hmm. it's actually really good. <laughs> it's just not quite as really good as the Japanese version, but it's still a masterpiece. Yes. Were there ch- what are you doing? Were there changes made to Come the American on. version in terms of difficulty? I know we talked about this a few episodes back. Uh, like It was sort of uh, combating the rental situation, so you couldn't beat it in a rental. Was that yep. only for America that it was changed for the worse? Uh, okay. It might have been changed for Europe, but it didn't come out in Europe until like 1992. I'm sure Jazz yeah. reviewed it, and you know, like at the same time he was reviewing uh, Mega Drive <laughs> games. And Dizzy, um, yeah. But, uh, Ray, do you want to speak to this, or should I? Uh, go ahead, please. Okay, um, yeah. The way the way Castlevania Three works in America is that enemies damage you universally based on zones. So if you are fighting an enemy in like the first area you only lose two points of health if it hits you. It doesn't matter what enemy it is. When you get to the final area, every enemy is hitting you for four points of damage, regardless of what kind of enemy it is. And you have 16 points of health, so after three hits, you better be careful. Um, In the Japanese version, it's actually variable health. Like, it doesn't depend on where you are so much as what kind of enemy hits you. Okay, And it's just there are more stronger enemies toward the end, but it's not quite that, like, you know, four hits and you're dead. It, it, It has more flexibility. But they, they took that out for the U.S. version. Hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah the, the big change um, in, in Castlevania 3 is really the ability to recruit helper characters. You can beat the game as just Trevor Belmont, Simon's ancestor, but you don't have to. You can recruit three different characters along the way. You can only tag up, tag, team up with one tag along at a time, but you have three different characters to choose from. And uh, they've become 
to different degrees, a part of Castlevania lore through the years. Yeah, I think that. Oh sure. Uh, like I do want to point out that uh, some of the like uh, like some of the character names do seem like goofy Konami localization stuff, but no, Grant Dynasty. That's his name in, J- in Japan. Grant Dynasty, <laughs> the nastiest Grant you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Sifo Belnades was actually supposed to be Sifo Fernandez. Ooh, weird. She's supposed to be like a. Oh, sorry. Did I spoil it? She, um, <laughs> she's supposed to be a uh, like a Spanish um, character, you know, because it does take place in Europe. Um, and the uh, in Castlevania sixty four, Carrie Fernandez is actually meant to have been uh, a descendant of Sypha, but that uh, didn't really come through because of the the localization weirdness. Yeah, I see. Yeah, was it the case in in the Japanese version where they kept the the gender ambiguous and just used uh, you know non specific terms to refer to okay i i think so i mean japan yeah. doesn't have gendered pronouns so yeah it's a lot because like when you get sifa it's just like would you like him to join your party you know yeah you could there's probably a legends of localization about that too but um you know it's the sure. same deal with like with samus aaron like they could they could uh keep the gender of the character ambiguous more easily because they didn't have to say him or her they would just say Hey, a person wants to come along. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That person. Right. They, they want to come along. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we all know Alucard. Yeah. Here looking very much like uh, Boris Karloff is. Yeah. Not, not, not as pretty. He's actually the worst character in the game. Yeah. <laughs> but he can turn into a bat. He can turn into a bat, and that's only really important in the one section of the game that's exclusive to Alucard, which is really, really unfair and not fun, and you just want to fly past it to skip it all because it's terrible. Um, So basically, Alucard creates and solves his own problem. He leads you to this horrible (laughs) level, and then he gets you through it by cheating. Yeah, I mean, that seems like like such a waste. (laughs) Like, it's supposed to be the son of Dracula. Like, can't we use him in some better way at all? Yeah. <laughs> the, the idea is sound. No. He can turn into a bat, and yeah. he, uh, he's the only character who's as durable as Trevor. He can take a hit as well as Trevor. Uh, but he's really, really weak. His attack is uh, throwing fireballs like Dracula does in the final battles. But mm-hmm. they're super pathetic. And uh, when you upgrade his attack power, it goes from one fireball to two to three. But the range is terrible on them. They have no stopping power, no hitting power. They're just like, like, Alucard, what, what, what is up? Like, you're supposed to be the son of, you know, Satan's number one minion. <laughs> and you can barely, you can barely hit anything. Maybe it's just half human blood. Yeah, maybe it's a genetic thing. Could be. Skips a generation. <laughs> entirely possible um there is a lot of debate i've discovered over whether sypha or uh, grant is the best helper character i always felt sypha but a lot of people have made a really good case for grant because <sighs> of his ability to climb walls yeah. walk on ceilings i like grant but i hate having to go down back down the clock tower it's such, a, it's such a rude awakening i forgot about it even this morning when i was playing i was like oh that's right you have to go you have to exit the level that you found him in i think <laughs> that's actually one of the cooler parts of the game so uh, yeah it is it is much easier no, it's just, it's just um, the way that plays out. So you start out with this map of the, the landscape around Castlevania because that's your ultimate goal is Dracula's castle. But it kind of takes a cue from, from Simon's quest in that you're, you're making the approach to Castlevania first. And there's two routes. There's like the long route around the lake outside of Castlevania. And then there's like the direct route across the bridge straight, straight into the castle. So you can go straight into the castle and you have to climb the clock tower first. And if you go up the clock tower and, and fight Grant, he can join your party. And then you make your way down. And once you make your way down, the clock tower collapses and it takes the entire bridge with it. So all of a sudden your your route straight into the castle disappears. 
and what you thought right, was going yeah. to be the easy route isn't and you have to take a different route so it's um i don't know like it's it's kind of playing around with the conventions of the map and and changing things up and and making for an interesting adventure and then um you know there's the the other route the underground route where you meet alucard and it's much more difficult it's more like the catacombs and it's very repetitive but that's kind of where the challenge is it's like the expert level stages so I, I kind of don't mind the uh, the the descent back down the clock tower because it feels like it has it has an impact on how the game plays, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I like Grant better too. Really? But Sypha has such yeah. great spells. Uh, I'm not usually such a spell guy. <laughs> Even like RPGs and stuff, magic users. I'm just like I'm not a, normally in RPGs, but man, in this game, they're so good. Like the lightning spell, if you power that thing up, mm. you can just take out. Like some some of the bosses who are really really difficult, um, you can stand in a safe place and send enemy seeking lightning balls after them and basically just cheese your way through the game. <laughs> the fire spell's great, and then of course the ice spell. Like on the few levels where you have water in the level, you can actually freeze the water and walk on top of it mm-hmm. instead of having to like run against the current and jump through. That is a plus. So it makes it makes that much easier. So she's just very versatile and very cool. Like very powerful in her own way, even though she can't take a hit very well in her staff attack her melee attack is pretty pathetic like everything else about her is is very very nice right well i think we can all agree on isle card at least <laughs> yeah he yeah. sucks <laughs> bob bob what's your vote you have to break the tie here uh, grant or, i'm gonna or go Saifa? with grant oh betrayal because it's just such a weird character <laughs> yeah that's that's my rationalization yeah also i really like his mobility um, I like like being able. It's like he's sort of like the knuckles of the crew, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> almost the same color too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is he is really great to have in the team on the uh, the auto scrolling stages, like when it's auto scrolling up a tower, because he can just totally skip entire chunks of the stage right. and get past the enemies and things like that. So yeah, that that definitely has its advantages. But <laughs> I don't know. I have a soft spot for Sypha. All right. So I have some bre- breaking news, guys. About something that we were oh, just yeah? talking about, I found who the director of uh, Castlevania was. All right. Um, oh yeah. I mean, as ambiguous as, of a term as director is for that kind of a uh, position, but right. um, Hitoshi Akamatsu. Uh, and basically, the, all I can find is like, we know he made the game. We don't know where he is. <laughs> yeah, he, he hasn't given any interviews. So yeah. Well, at least that's a name. <laughs> so we have a name. So do you think the the series was named after him? Akamatsu, Akamajo. Oh no, Akamatsu Dragon. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, a few more, a few more things about Castlevania Three. Like it really does, like I said, feel kind of like the proper realization of what Simon's Quest was trying to do. Up to the fact that when you finally do reach the castle at the end, it's still you know four stages. It's not just like oh here's the basement and you're crawling through it and oh there's Dracula. Like it's kind of a, a miniaturized version of the original Castlevania. There's some very familiar beats, but it also kind of pulls in elements from the rest of Castlevania Three. Like you go through a courtyard, and instead of being like the 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 courtyard from the original Castlevania, it looks more like the forest from Castlevania Three. But it still kind of plays the same way that Castlevania's courtyard did. It's just kind of a, a cool mashup, and um, it definitely mm-hmm. had some kind mm-hmm. of lasting impact yeah. because. The uh, the series has referenced it so many times and kind of riffed on it. Oh. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think maybe the first that Americans ever saw was uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, when uh, you know the hero of that game is Alucard um, playing the protagonist. And in the uh, the second half of the game, there's a battle against uh, zombies who have taken on the form of Trevor and Sypha and Grant. Which uh, yeah, the oh, first right. time I, yeah. I came across that, I was just. Like my mind was completely blown. Like I, I got that there were little <laughs> Castlevania references. Oh, hey, all the 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 icons I'm collecting in the second castle are the same as the the body parts I collected in Castlevania Two. But but that battle really right. just like completely amazed me. It was so awesome. One thing uh, my my girlfriend noticed when I was playing their old, older games this morning was that uh, the older Castlevanias are about a journey to the castle. The newer Castlevanias, you're just in the castle immediately. <laughs> yeah. Just like he gives you what you want, the castle. <laughs> it's in the name. Here you go. <laughs> um, that's that's kind of true and kind of not. I mean, the original Castlevania was all inside the castle. Um, Super Castlevania 4 is about getting to the castle. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. About getting to the castle. Um, some of the later Castlevanias that Igarashi worked on, um, like the castle is something you find later on. That's the case for um, Dawn of Sorrow. 
and it's the case mm. for Order of Ecclesia. So I just um, thinking of the, the of Game mix. Boy Advance trilogy, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and Symphony of the Night. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's it kind of goes back and forth. I think after a while they're like, oh, there's too much of the castle. Let's take it away from the castle. Oh, yeah, like, bring it back to the castle. Order of Ecclesia was what like? Was there a castle in that? <laughs> I don't know. That's the one I've never really played all the way through. Oh my gosh. I I just find it really tedious. I don't know why. Well, we can do a retronauts in it on it in like three years. So (laughs) (laughs) get to work. Um, Castlevania four years. Um, Yeah. So some of the other games that kind of uh, riffed on Castlevania three Rondo of blood, I would say is probably the most direct sequel to this game, even though Castlevania four was called Castlevania Uh four was its own weird thing. It's Mm. like no other Castlevania game. Whereas Rondo of Blood really feels like they said let's let's perfect that even further and make it you know more approachable, more playable, more user friendly, but also still really difficult. And let's keep the branching paths, but let's do something different with the branching paths. Let's throw in lots of secrets. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, good that's why I, that's one of my favorites, along with three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you haven't really said that much about three, Ray. I'm I'm curious to hear more of your take on it. Well, I mean. Well, honestly, I'm not super familiar with any of the Castlevanias except for like a couple and like the later portable ones. But I do think 3 is really just one of those hallmarks of like the 1990 NES lineup, which is like so many of these great sequels that came out. Mario 3, Mega Man 3, Ninja Gaiden 2, Castlevania 3, et cetera, et cetera. And they are all basically great examples of just like (laughs) just making what came before them so much better. Mm -hmm. And Castlevania 3 is really up there. And so, like, yeah, I mean, again, I was as, uh, somewhat late covered the NES. I wasn't really into Castlevania 1 or 2. So it was like 3 just seemed like the one to really be excited for. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Bob? Yeah. I, I am so terrible at all of these games. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I did play yeah. 3 when it came out. I barely got past the clock tower. But um, I, I've, I've finished the game with save states before. But, uh no, I, I love Castlevania 3. I think it's like one of, uh, difficulty aside, it's like one of the like perfect NES games. Um, I wish it was a little easier. I wish they would have, you know, not made it hard to, uh, you know, combat rentals and things like that. But um, yeah, I, 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 I appreciate it on so many levels from control to graphics to music to just the atmosphere. Um, it's brilliant. Like definitely one of the top five NES games. All right. Awesome. And uh, my favorite Castlevania 3 reference is actually in uh, Castlevania Dawn of Sorrow. If you get the bad ending, um, the protagonist becomes Dracula. And so there's an op- optional <laughs> bonus mode that opens up where you control Alucard and can pick up uh, a Belmont and you can pick up one of uh, Saifa's descendants, Yoko, and uh, basically play through the castle in kind of a Castlevania 3 style. It's still, you know, like the nonlinear Egovania style, but. Um, it's like you swap, swap between the characters and you can have all three at once. Supposedly there was going to be, uh, they were going to make hammer the, the shopkeeper playable and in the style of Grant, oh, man. Yeah. which I don't really see happening. Like it's just, it seems like a weird idea, but, uh, it, it's still fun without it. Like it's just this kind of cool reference. Yeah. Here's Castlevania three redone, um, as kind of a, a, you know, an extra bonus for getting a bad ending for the game. It's, it's pretty rad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one last thing, uh, if you guys have nothing more to add, that I noticed that Castlevania 3 is the last game in the series to k- kind of keep the film motif going because in all, in all the other games, like when you start the game, there are like uh, the film, the, it looks like you're oh, looking yeah, at a piece sprockets. of film scrolling by because of the, yeah, film sprockets, yeah, thanks, I couldn't think of the word, but um, 3 is the last game I think where they keep that metaphor going, like this is like a movie-based game, we're, we're, this is a tribute to movies, things like that, I think. It wasn't as explicit with any of the games that followed. And I always liked that because it was just this inexplicable thing, sort of like how Mario 3 was like, this is like a stage show we're putting on for you, and here's the curtain and things like that. But it wasn't so um, you know, obvious as the film strip in Castlevania. Yeah, I think after a while they just said, you know, this Universal Monster movie thing isn't really reading anymore, so let's just skip it. Yeah. Also, uh, the, the box art for Castlevania 3 includes a, a – like a – like a, I don't know what you call those, like a little circular logo or like pop out or something. It's like win a trip to Dracula's hometown. Oh, I want to know who won that trip. I, I just I like a few months ago I did a, a history of Castlevania box art for Games Radar and I saw that and I just was like, who went to Transylvania? Yeah. If I you wonder. went to Transylvania, write in now to Retronauts. <laughs> we want to know what a miserable failure that trip was. If, if I know anything about video game prizes uh, like yeah. that, yeah, I wonder. 
It's probably like, oh, we'll forward you to this charter company. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's three Castlevania games that we talked about, and it felt good, man. It felt good. Um, and I will let this podcast in now because it's gone about twice as long as pocket episodes usually do. Oh, golly. Yeah, but we like Castlevania. <clears throat> All right, cool. All right, so this wraps it up for me for season three of Retronauts. I'm done as the host. Hooray. Now it's just uh, four more episodes and then mysteries. So uh, you can find <laughs> me personally on the internet, on Twitter, as GameSpite, at usgamer.net, uh, on various other side projects you can find mentioned at gamespite.net. Oh, hi, I'm Bob. <laughs> you all know me. I'm at Bob Servo on Twitter, and uh, you can find my work on uh, US Gamer and uh, Something Awful. Sorry, I had a yawn attack. I'm not <laughs> sure what happened over there. <laughs> I'm Ray Barnhold, RDBA on Twitter. That's three A's. And of course, I do a magazine, scroll.vg. Thank you. And you can find Retronauts here in your ears as well as at Retronauts.com, on iTunes as Retronauts, on Facebook as Retronauts, on Twitch as Retronauts, on basically any social media format you can think of as Retronauts. And and also SoundCloud. I hear that's a really good way to listen to the show on your phone. So, uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, that's Do what it, I hear. folks. SoundCloud. Make it happen. Um, and um, I guess that's it. So thanks, everyone, for listening to me Stamble, stumble and stammer my way stamble stamble yes stamble, stamble my way through uh, <laughs> case in point through uh, through hosting these episodes and I hope you'll join us for whatever we do after these next four episodes um, please keep your ears open because it's important that you do that and stuff anyway um, yeah so long everyone bye <laughs>